1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is that time of the week when we talk about matters related to intelligence. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Rothguff, and I am joined, as always, by the other co-host, Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing, Mark?
0: I'm sleepy. I got home at three in the morning. Uh, my flight from Denver was delayed by four hours, and so, uh, uh, but I did. I was I was explaining before um, I was stuck in the business class lounge in Denver, so I took it out on United and ate about four pounds of macaroni and cheese. That's my story this morning.
1: Yeah, that's a real healthy choice there, Mark. Uh, We'll (laughs) probably not discuss that any further here because we are also joined by great guest, Christina Hillsberg. She's a former CIA intelligence officer, writer, and expert on women in espionage and intelligence uh, tradecraft, has also written about the relationship between intelligence and parenting. Um, uh, which I hope we get to at some point here, because I want to know how your mastery of tranquilizer darts led has in, improved your ability to be a good parent. But I I can only imagine. Um, uh, Mark, why don't you start us off?
0: Sure. Well, well first of all, it's awesome having Christina uh, on. We actually both were at a conference um, this this uh, this last week, so we got a chance to, to chat a bit. And I will just say that this David, this is the first time and perhaps the only time where we will have a Swahili Zulu speaker. A Zulu linguist uh, on the show, and so you know we're uh, we're doing pretty well if uh, if we get that level of talent. So I, I throw that out there.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Mark, for that great intro, and no, thank you, David. It's, it's awesome. great to be here.
0: So, so let's just jump in because you know I think the world has been so focused on on Israel Gaza, and and you know I think you you can you can provide some really unique insights on this because you are an Africa specialist, um, and so your take on this is going to be welcome because you spend so much of your time in Africa actually working on. Uh, uh, Somali issues, you know, particularly counterterrorism, but also there's a side of you that, that I know and that the audience will learn too, that kind of deeply cares about humanitarian issues too. In fact, you had said to me at one point that you even thought about joining the Peace Corps, which of course I don't think you can do anymore. After, That's right. <laughs> uh, being a CIA officer. So, you know, so how do these counterterrorism campaigns kind of take into account human rights and and kind of the civilian collateral damage concerns? And, you know, will Israel be able to get this right? I think you can offer some unique perspectives on this.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the first things I'll say is that it's not black and white. People want a very clear answer, and it's not that straightforward. When you're looking at something like counterterrorism, we have to live more in the world of gray. You you like to think, oh, there are good guys and bad guys, and it's very clear cut. But what I found during my time working on Somalia, it's just simply not always that way. And as someone like you mentioned, you know, I, I interviewed for the Peace Corps and the agency within weeks of each other, and I studied African languages. The idea was that I would do humanitarian work or I would document some you know, language language on the verge of extinction in the bush in Africa. And so I ended up at the CIA because of my love for a foreign land, um, you know, which is very unlike people who were inspired by 9-11 or, you know, very patriotic. That's not to say that I'm not patriotic, but I am an Africa specialist. And so that was often something that I struggled with. Um, you know, I was working on Somalia, like you mentioned, uh, for. A good part of my career, and some of that time was actually in the Do. And I remember when we were tracking the mastermind behind the U.S. embassy bombings in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi in 1998. You know, we were tracking them some years later, and I, and I remember moments of just walking to my car and thinking, "What am I doing here?" Right? It, it is a very um, challenging uh, problem, and I don't think there's an easy answer for Israel. I mean, I just saw last night that there are recent uh, reports that Israel released a conversation. Uh, with an official in the Gazan health system who confirmed that Hamas was storing 500,000 liters of fuel under the hospital and that hundreds of terrorists that are responsible for the massacre on October 7th are, you know, fled back and are hiding in that hospital. So that makes for an impossible situation. And so I just think it's, it's not clear cut. I think the, we're going to see the international community continue to put more and more pressure on Israel in the coming weeks because it is becoming increasingly dire.
1: Let me pick up on that. Um we had a a a friend of the podcast on last week on one of our other podcasts talking about um Gaza, uh but he's the president of Refugees International. He's dealing with these issues all around the world. Um and when we, you know, talk about Israel and Gaza right now, there's a lot of debate about you know, ethnic cleansing and, you know, Israel versus the Palestinians, Palestinians versus the Israelis. But but there is, you know, there are other examples of this going on right now. And right now, again, in Sudan, in Darfur, there is another situation uh, in which this is taking place. You know, uh, uh, ironically or not, there, there was a massacre uh, in West Darfur where roughly the same number of people were killed As were killed in Israel on October 7th. And it's nowhere on the radar. How do you react to that?
2: You know, I'll say it's not surprising. As someone working in Africa, you know, you're steeped in the substance and you're aware of what's going on all over the continent. And you're also keenly aware that most of the world is not. It's a good thing as an analyst coming in on Africa because you're not surrounded by tons of Africa specialists, right? Because it's not considered as high of a priority as other parts of the world. Uh, And I won't say what I think about that, but, (laughs) but you're able to do, you have a lot more responsibility. No, but you can say,
1: this is a part that, you know, this is a safe space. You can say what you think about that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'll say, I think there should be more resources. I do think it's important. I think it's a part of the world that is generally overlooked. Um, You know, look at what China's doing there. I mean, if we don't start doing more, we're not going to be able to catch up. And so while we're ignoring Africa and putting, you know, a handful of analysts on very what I think are very important issues. Um, you know, China's eating our lunch, so we really need to think about that, right?
0: Absolutely right, Mark. Well, you know, you, you mentioned something, and, and I think probably people don't understand as much. You know, you think about the CIA um, and and all the things we do, particularly on counterterrorism. But you know, w- what your comments before is that you know there are you know there is and I won't say trauma involved, but you know there is a, an emotional toll. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um,
0: when you do work uh, uh, in these conflict zones, and you know whether it's you know uh, our officers who you know are working Israel Gaza now, but even more so the 20 years of the, the the global war on terrorism, or as you said in Africa, you know as a as a CIA officer, you actually see a lot. And it just I go back to a time, um, and this is you know this podcast is uh, although David might disagree with my silly comments, but this podcast is not about me. But but I do like to give some some anecdotes and you know when I was yeah, going we're through co-hosts
1: and half the time yeah. it's about me.
0: <laughs> right. So but when I was going through Walter Reed's traumatic brain injury program and talking to the psychologists and the psychology you know psychiatrists there, it's really interesting because, you know, I went over my twenty-six years and and you know, you know, years and years in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. And, you know, and the and the psychologists there were like, you know, we could we could sit down with you and you probably need it for a for a heck of a long time with what you've done and experienced. And so Um, I I thought your comments were were pretty profound there because, you know, uh, particularly um, if you are working on an issue and not to say the U.S. is is necessarily or perhaps actually you did that the U.S. is ignoring it. But, you know, you're kind of screaming into the wind with these humanitarian crises uh, in uh, in Africa. Can you can you kind of elaborate that just a little bit more?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. You know, it's nothing like being like the one analyst on, you know, fill in the blank Af- West African country when like a coup happens and all of a sudden, you know, it's almost always like a junior analyst that's like all of a sudden up to the plate, like this is my moment. Um, I think that, yeah, it, it is very much a screaming into the wind kind of thing until everyone gets on board. I think it does take a toll on um, agency officers. For example, I was talking to a retired female case officer recently and she was telling me You know, after having left, she doesn't really know what it is like to be a normal civilian because she has learned how to. You know, emotionally separate herself, right? She's sharing stories with me about, you know, meeting with assets and some of the unsavory characters. And this goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about living in the gray. It's not as simple as good guy, bad guy, right? Sometimes there are unsavory characters that we have to meet with because our goal is to get intelligence and, you know, protect Americans and, and, um, you know, our national security. And so sometimes there's, you know, people who come to the table with a lot of trauma, um, a lot of baggage. And as a case officer, you know, um, she was, you know, hearing a lot of this information from these assets, you, me, same, same, and really having this empathetic ear, but you get used to hearing um really difficult things. And so the brain has to find a way to process that. And so she was saying, you know, I'm not sure if I'll ever really know what it's like to be a normal civilian after the things that I've seen and done. And um, I think that that's, that's a challenge. It's part of the work. But I also think that it's extremely important work. And I'm glad that there are folks still in and doing this type of work. Um, you know. But for me, it, it was difficult at times having that uh, interest in the humanitarian part as well.
1: If you're like me, you're probably more than a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does, and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Host Simone Leeper speaks with experts from across the political spectrum and takes a deep dive into the forces fueling our elections, not just in our nation's capital, but at all levels of government. Democracy Decoded will help you make sense of how we currently elect our leaders and hold them accountable, and how we can better ensure that all citizens have the right to have their voices heard. Clearly, these are exactly the issues we need to be discussing right now, given what is happening all around us. Tune in to learn more about how we can use innovative ideas to build a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, uh, you know, as the situation in Ukraine and as the situation in Israel-Gaza reveal There's always a humanitarian part, absolutely, and and uh, you know in Africa it is more acutely uh, expressed, but 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 again we we it tends to fall on deaf ears here, I you know I've seen estimates regarding Africa right now where there are 35 conflicts going on at the moment, there are 16 countries in conflict, and there are 40 million forcibly displaced people. In Africa, forty million, um, and it, it, admittedly, I I think it's horrific that there, are whatever it is, one point three million displaced Palestinians at the moment, um, but they're getting news coverage, they're getting the bandwidth of policymakers, and and the you know these forty million people are not, um, and and the question is as an Africa specialist you know, have you just thrown up your hands and said, this is the way it's going to be until, you know, the U.S. and China decide they want to fight over one portion of this? Or, or, you know, are there any trends that offer you sort of hope? You know, I think the risk
2: is exactly that, is people throwing up their hands. And I think, I think, you know, at the agency working on Africa for so long, there's also a risk of just kind of hardened heart, for lack of better terms. Like you kind of get to the point where you're not surprised by some of it. And I think that's when it started scaring me, right? When it started to not affect me as much. When it's like, oh, it's another coup. Oh, there's violence, right? It becomes very um, matter of fact. And it stops kind of tugging on those heartstrings because you see it so much and you're so used to people not caring. So I think that that is that is the risk. I always have some hope, but I'll tell you that one of our catchphrases when I worked Somalia was uh, that it's where hope goes to die, and you know that's not very um, optimistic. So I, I can't speak to what you know the current analytic line is on it because I've been out for a while. But I, I certainly hope. I do remember at one point our team went down to like the national archives, and we were able to read like some analysis on Somalia from like years and years ago. And it was basically the same analytic line. And I remember that we were all just like, oh, you know, here we are, you know, something like 20 years later that we're like, how are we still writing the same? So I- I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic, but it, it is a, a difficult part of the world to work on. And, and like I said, I'm thankful that there are still folks fighting the good fight.
1: I would point out, by the way, just as one fact that I'd like to flag here, um, that in the past 25 years, 6 million people have died in the Democratic Republic of Congo. One conflict. That's the Holocaust, right? That's the size of the Holocaust. Um, And I would wager that 98 out of 100 Americans have no idea. I think that's a fair
2: assessment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very disheartening.
0: Yeah, it sure is. Well, um, let's let's switch topics just a bit to actually something that is you know e- equally of of uh, concern to a lot of people. Certainly, myself and Christine. I think you'll share this, and that's the recent you know uh, sexual harassment uh, issues and scandals at, at the CIA, our old uh, place of work. And so, if you can, you know, and I think we want to spend some time on this, um, but if you can kind of describe first what's happening. And then, really, just kind of give an overview or, or your thoughts on does this recent scandal um, accurately reflect the the current environment for women at the agency? Um, let's uh, let's dive into that. Sure. now.
2: So, I think what we're seeing now is that the Me Too mo- movement has finally arrived at the CIA a little bit late, but it's coming. And uh, you know, just last week, a man, a former case officer named Brian Jeffrey Raymond. Pled guilty for drugging and sexually assaulting more than two dozen women over a 14-year period um, while working at the CIA, um, which is—I mean—I I don't even have words for it. it it's horrifying. Um, reading some of the court documents and and you know what he's being charged with, and um, the fact that it was going on so long uh, unchecked is really concerning. Um, so, so there's a couple different things going on. So there's that, but then also in August we saw the conviction of um, a man who was charged with sexually assaulting a DO case officer trainee in the stairwell at headquarters. Um, And he wrapped essentially wrapped a scarf around her neck and pulled the ends and, and tried to force himself on her. Um, She had to fight him off and he tried it again and then actually was able to uh, kiss her as she escaped to the hallway and was actually laughing uh, while doing it. It was a a very terrifying um, experience. And so Um, This has uh, gotten into the press. And I think what the agency is seeing is, you know, some of this is just the tip of the iceberg. And I think that they are scrambling to contain what is happening because that case has basically set off a chain reaction of women who are finally feeling comfortable coming forward to report instances of sexual assault and harassment. The view for years, I will say decades, probably since the inception of the agency, I think it's pretty fair to say, is that it's career suicide to report assault and that there is an understanding that you will not receive the support that you would need if you were to report it. It would ruin your career. You would go nowhere from there. And so most women that I know, myself included, uh, would never feel comfortable reporting something like that. And so what we're seeing is this chain reaction. And so after this, um, you know, we're referring to her as Jane Doe, filed these charges and this court case was, you know, made its way into the press, uh, there's been a flood of women. The HIPSI has uh, begun an investigation. The sissy, as well is doing uh, is the inspector general um, investigation. And we're seeing, you know, floods of women come in to the point that they've been completely overbooked, um, having trouble staying, you know, keeping up on the schedule, scheduling women on their calendar to come in and share their experiences. And so, I think it will be really interesting to see what comes next. Actually, that Jane Doe, after her assailant was convicted. Um, she has now filed a suit against the agency, alleging witness tampering and, um, you know, essentially them um, deterring her and, from reporting the incident. And of note, her assailant, who has been convicted, is still a security cleared serving CIA officer uh, to this day. Well, That's let, a lot
1: of information. No, no, it's it's important information. I'd like to talk about the flip side of it uh, or another side of of the issue for women in the intelligence community. Uh, Of course, right now, the head of the intelligence community is a woman, Avril Haines. The CIA had its first woman director uh, during the last administration, Gina Haspel, who came up through the ranks and was well-respected, I think. Um, But if you look at upper management in the intelligence community, women are underrepresented absolutely how, how do you feel how, how, how do you feel that is or is not changing and how do you feel that does or does not impact um, the, the, the the quality of the work that gets done in in the IC I
2: think that's a great question I think the agency has made a lot of progress when you look at the numbers in terms of women. Women make up nearly half of the organization at this point. But of course, as you're saying, as you get to those upper levels, you see a drop-off and there are not as many women at the senior intelligence ranks. And so there have been a number of studies and efforts done um, over the past several decades to remedy that and you know put things in place. Madeline Albright actually um, did a study um, that was commissioned by the director at the time and made several recommendations. And so I do think that we have seen some positive change. I think you know, in 2018, we had Director Gina Haspel, the first woman. We also had uh, Beth Kimber, was the first um, DO, um, which is you know arguably a really important milestone because we're coming from a time when you know women used to not even be able to. Run cases, you know, women couldn't be case officers to then having a woman essentially in charge of all clandestine operations worldwide. That's a pretty important uh, milestone for women. So I think it is moving in the right direction. Do I think there's still work to be done? Absolutely. But I think what you have is something that has um, long been an old boys club and um, most certainly in the DO of all places. That's where we see it the most. And so you have men in positions of power who. Abuse that power and create this dynamic where um, women are sexually harassed and unfortunately assaulted. I mean, as I mean, as back as one of the women I was interviewing in 1979, I was just telling Mark about it this weekend. You know, she, when she started, she would walk down the hallway, and every time she would see one particular man, he would grab her breasts and say "honk." I mean, in in broad daylight in the hallway, and when she went to report it, because she actually did go to report it, the woman in HR said, oh, honey, he's retiring in just a few months. Do you really want to ruin his career with this? And then you'd be that girl, and you're just starting out. Right? So that was 1979. And when I'm looking at the court documents of, of what was said to Jane Doe, I'm not convinced that there's been a lot of change in that regard. So I think if the agency wants to continue on this path of diversifying its workforce and having women there, which we are an integral part of the mission, and I will tell you that I've interviewed dozens of female case officers as part of research for my upcoming book, and we can talk about that as well. And I think women bring skills particularly as case officers, that are so important, so different from men, and we need them at the organization. And so they need to take this seriously, and that includes holding assailants accountable. There is absolutely zero reason in my mind why this person should be walking through the building every day, because here's what I look at. Here's what I look at. Brian Jeffrey Raymond, 14 years he was doing this activity, okay? Drugging and assaulting women. So we have a man now who attacked a woman in the stairwell, was convicted by Fairfax County. Why is he still there? Because what I don't want to see is in 14 years, we're finding that this individual has now done something similar to that other person, right? So, I mean, we go through so many security checks, psychological testing to get into the agency, and I just think this is absolutely unacceptable. They say that there's a zero tolerance, so I think they need to actually follow through on their words and not just be lip service if they want to keep women around.
1: No question about it. This is the point in the show where we say to everybody who is not a member, we really appreciate your coming in and listening to what we've got here. And we hope that in listening to discussions like this one, that you're not really going to find any place else. You say, I'd like to support this effort. I'd like to become a member. If you want to, you go to the dsrnetwork.com. click on membership, it's $5 a month. It's not much to ask, but it does allow us to uh, build and expand our offerings as we have. So I encourage you to do that. However, if you're not a member, you can't listen to the rest of the podcast now because it's the members-only portion, uh, and that's another good incentive to go and become a member. So for now, non-members, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time. For those of you who are members, stand by.